Section 9 of Reminiscences of Captain Grono. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Reminiscences of Captain Grono by Captain Rhys Howell Grono. A dinner at Sir James Bland Burgess's in Lower Brook Street, Autumn 1815. I was once invited to dinner by Sir James Burgess, father of my friend Captain Burgess of the Guards. It was towards the end of the season 1815. I there met, to my great delight, Lord Byron and Sir Walter Scott, and amongst the rest of the company were Lord Caledon and Croker, the Secretary to the Admiralty. Sir James had been Private Secretary to Pitt at the time of the French Revolution and had a fund of curious anecdotes about everything and everybody of note at the end of the last century. I remember his telling us the now generally received story of Pitt dictating a king's speech off-hand, then a more difficult task than at the present day, without the slightest hesitation, this speech being adopted by his colleagues nearly word for word as it was written down. Walter Scott was quite delightful, appearing full of fire and animation, and told some interesting anecdotes connected with his early life in Scotland. I remember his proving himself, what would have been called in the olden times he delighted to portray, a stout trencherman. Nor were his attentions confined by any means to the eatables. On the contrary, he showed himself worthy to have made a third in the famous carousel in Ivanhoe, between the Black Knight and the Holy Clerk of Cotmanhurst. Byron, whom I had before seen at the shooting-galleries and elsewhere, was then a very handsome man, with remarkably fine eyes and hair, but was, as usual, all show-off and affectation. I recollect his saying that he disliked seeing women eat, or to have their company at dinner from a wish to believe, if possible, in their more ethereal nature. But he was rallied into avowing that his chief dislike to their presence at the festive board arose from the fact of their being helped first, and consequently getting all the wings of the chickens, whilst men had to be content with the legs or other parts. Byron on this occasion was in great good humour, and full of boyish and even boisterous mirth. Croker was also agreeable, notwithstanding his bitter and sarcastic remarks upon everything and everybody. The sneering, ill-natured expression of his face struck me as an impressive contrast to the frank and benevolent countenance of Walter Scott. I never assisted at a more agreeable dinner. According to the custom of the day we sat late. The poets, statesmen, and soldiers all drank an immense quantity of wine, and I, for one, felt the effects of it next day. Walter Scott gave one or two recitations, in a very animated manner, from the ballads that he had been collecting, which delighted his auditory. And both Lord Byron and Croker added to the hilarity of the evening, by quotations from, and criticisms on, the more prominent writers of the period. Lord Byron. I knew very little of Lord Byron personally, but lived much with two of his intimate friends, Scrope Davis and Wedderburn Webster, 
from whom I frequently heard many anecdotes of him. I regret that I remember so few, and wish that I had written down those told me by poor Scrope Davis, one of the most agreeable men I ever met. When Byron was at Cambridge, he was introduced to Scrope Davis by their mutual friend Matthews, who was afterwards drowned in the River Cam. After Matthews' death, Davis became Byron's particular friend, and was admitted to his rooms at all hours. Upon one occasion, he found the poet in bed with his hair en papillote, upon which Scrope cried, Ha! ha! Byron, I have at last caught you acting the part of the sleeping beauty. Byron, in a rage, exclaimed, No, Scrope, the part of a damned fool, you should have said. Well, then, anything you please, but you have succeeded admirably in deceiving your friends, for it was my conviction that your hair curled naturally. Yes, naturally, every night, returned the poet. But do not, my dear Scrope, let the cat out of the bag, for I am as vain of my curls as a girl of sixteen. When in London, Byron used to go to Manton's shooting-gallery in Davis Street to try his hand, as he said, at a wafer. Wedderburn Webster was present when the poet, intensely delighted with his own skill, boasted to Joe Manton that he considered himself the best shot in London. "'No, my lord,' replied Manton, "'not the best. But your shooting to-day was respectable.' upon which Byron waxed wroth and left the shop in a violent passion. Lords Byron, Yarmouth, Pollington, Mountjoy, Wallisecourt, Blandford, Captain Burgess, Jack Bouverie, and myself, were, in 1814, and for several years afterwards, amongst the chief and most constant frequenters of this well-known shooting-gallery, and frequently shot at the wafer for considerable sums of money. Manton was allowed to enter the betting-list, and he generally backed me. On one occasion I hit the wafer nineteen times out of twenty. Byron lived a great deal at Brighton, his house being opposite the pavilion. He was fond of boating, and was generally accompanied by a lad, who was said to be a girl in boys' clothes. This report was confirmed to me by Webster, who was then living at Brighton. The vivid description of the page in Lara, no doubt, gave some plausibility to this often-told tale. I myself witnessed the dexterous manner in which Byron used to get into his boat, for, while standing on the beach, I once saw him vault into it with the agility of a harlequin, in spite of his lame foot. On one occasion, whilst his lordship was dining with a few of his friends in Charles Street, Pall Mall, a letter was delivered to Scrope Davis, which required an immediate answer. Scrope, after reading its contents, handed it to Lord Byron. It was thus worded. "'My dear Scrope, lend me five hundred pounds for a few days. The funds are shut for the dividends, or I would not have made this request.' G. Brummel. The reply was, "'My dear Brummel, all my money is locked up in the funds.' Scrope Davis. This was just before Brummel's escape to the continent. I have frequently asked Scrope Davis his private opinion of Lord Byron, and invariably received the same answer. 
that he considered Lord Byron very agreeable and clever, but vain, overbearing, conceited, suspicious, and jealous. Byron hated Palmerston, but liked Peel, and thought that the whole world ought to be constantly employed in admiring his poetry and himself. He never could write a poem or a drama without making himself its hero, and he was always the subject of his own conversation. During one of Henry Hobhouse's visits to Byron at his villa near Genoa, and whilst they were walking in the garden, his lordship suddenly turned upon his guests, and apropos of nothing, exclaimed, "'Now I know, Hobhouse, you are looking at my foot.' Upon which Hobhouse kindly replied, "'My dear Byron, nobody thinks of or looks at anything but your head.' Shelley Shelley, the poet, cut off at so early an age, just when his great poetical talents had been matured by study and reflection, and when he probably would have produced some great work, was my friend and associate at Eton. He was a boy of studious and meditative habits, averse to all games and sports, and a great reader of novels and romances. He was a thin, slight lad, with remarkably lustrous eyes, fine hair, and a very peculiar, shrill voice and laugh. His most intimate friend at Eton was a boy named Price, who was considered one of the best classical scholars amongst us. At his tutor, Bethel's, where he lodged, he attempted many mechanical and scientific experiments. By the aid of a common tinker, he contrived to make something like a steam-engine, which, unfortunately, one day suddenly exploded, to the great consternation of the neighbourhood, and to the imminent danger of a severe flogging from Dr. Reet. Soon after leaving school, and about the year 1810, he came, in a state of great distress and difficulty, to Swansea, where we had an opportunity of rendering him a service, but we never could ascertain what had brought him to Wales, though we had reason to suppose it was some mysterious affaire du coeur. The last time I saw Shelley was at Genoa, in 1822, sitting on the seashore, and when I came upon him, making a true poet's meal of bread and fruit, he at once recognised me, jumped up, and appearing greatly delighted, exclaimed, "'Here you see me at my old Eton habits, but instead of the green fields for a couch, I have here the shores of the Mediterranean. It is very grand, and very romantic. I only wish I had some of the excellent brown bread and butter we used to get at Spears's, but I was never very fastidious in my diet.' Then he continued in a wild and eccentric manner, "'Grono, do you remember the beautiful Martha, the Hebe of Spears's? She was the loveliest girl I ever saw, and I loved her to distraction.' Shelley was looking careworn and ill, and, as usual, was very carelessly dressed. He had on a large and wide straw hat, his long brown hair, already streaked with grey, flowing in large masses from under it and presented a wild and strange appearance. During the time I sat by his side, he asked many questions about myself and many of our schoolfellows, but on my questioning him in turn about himself, his way of life and his future plans, he avoided entering into any explanation. Indeed, he gave such short and evasive answers that, thinking my inquisitiveness displeased him, 
I rose to take my leave. I observed that I had not been lucky enough to see Lord Byron in any of my rambles, to which he replied, "'Byron is living at his villa, surrounded by his court of sycophants, but I shall shortly see him at Leghorn.' We then shook hands. I never saw him again, for he was drowned shortly afterwards with his friend Captain Williams, and his body was washed ashore near Via Reggio. Everyone is familiar with the romantic scene which took place on the seashore when the remains of my poor friend and Captain Williams were burnt in the presence of Byron and Trelawney in the Roman fashion. His ashes were gathered into an urn and buried in the Protestant cemetery at Rome. He was but twenty-nine years of age at his death. Robert Southey, the Poet In the year 1803, my father received a letter of introduction from Mr. Rees of the well-known firm of Longman, Paternoster Row, presenting Robert Southey, the poet, to him. He came into Wales with the hope of finding a cottage to reside in. Accordingly, a cavalcade was formed, consisting of Mr. W. Gwynne, the two brothers Southey, my father and myself, and we rode up the valley of Neath to look at a cottage about eight miles from the town. The poet, delighted with the scenery and situation, decided upon taking it. But the owner, unfortunately for the honour of Welshmen, actually declined to let it to Robert Southey, fearing that a poet could not find security for the small annual rent of twenty-five pounds. This circumstance led the man of letters, who eventually became one of the most distinguished men of his day, to seek a home elsewhere and the lakes were at length chosen as his residence. Probably the picturesque beauties of Cumberland compensated the laureate for the indignity put upon him by the Welshman. An act of vandalism perpetrated in the same Vale of Neath, and reflecting no honour on my countrymen, deserves here to be noted with reprobation. A natural cascade called Dalaith, which was so beautiful as to excite the admiration of travellers, was destroyed by an agent to Lord Jersey, the proprietor of the estate, in order to build a few cottages and the lock of a canal. The rock down which this beautiful cascade had flowed from the time of the flood, and which had created a scene of beauty universally admired, was blown up with gunpowder by this man who could probably appreciate no more beautiful sight than that which presents itself from a window in Gray's or Lincoln's Inn, of which he was a member. Captain Hesse, formerly of the 18th Hussars One of my most intimate friends was the late Captain Hesse, generally believed to be a son of the Duke of York by a German lady of rank though it is not my intention to disclose certain family secrets of which I am in possession, I may nevertheless record some circumstances connected with the life of my friend, which were familiar to a large circle with whom I mixed. Hesse, in early youth, lived with the Duke and Duchess of York. He was treated in such a manner by them as to indicate an interest in him by their royal highnesses, which could scarcely be attributed to ordinary regard, and was gazetted a cornet in the eighteenth hussars at seventeen years of age. Shortly afterwards he went to Spain, 
and was present in all the battles in which his regiment was engaged, receiving a severe wound in the wrist at the Battle of Vittoria. When this became known in England, a royal lady wrote to Lord Wellington requesting that he might be carefully attended to, and at the same time a watch with her portrait was forwarded, which was delivered to the wounded hussar by Lord Wellington himself. When he had sufficiently recovered, Hesse returned to England, and passed much of his time at Oatlands, the residence of the Duchess of York. He was also honoured with the confidence of the Princess Charlotte and her mother, Queen Caroline. Many delicate and important transactions were conducted through the medium of Captain Hesse. In fact, it was perfectly well known that he played a striking part in many scenes of domestic life which I do not wish to reveal. I may, however, observe that the Prince Regent sent the late Admiral Lord Keith to Hesse's lodgings who demanded, in His Royal Highness's name, the restitution of the watch and letters which had been sent him when in Spain. After a considerable amount of hesitation, the Admiral obtained what he wanted the following day, whereupon Lord Keith assured him that the Prince Regent would never forget so great a mark of confidence, and that the heir to the throne would ever afterwards be his friend. I regret to say, from personal knowledge, that upon this occasion the prince behaved most ungratefully and unfeelingly, for after having obtained all he wanted, he positively refused to receive Hesse at Carlton House. Hesse's life was full of singular incidents. He was a great friend of the Queen of Naples, grandmother of the ex-sovereign of the Two Sicilies. In fact, so notorious was that liaison, that Hesse was eventually expelled from Naples under an escort of gendarmes. He was engaged in several affairs of honour, in which he always displayed the utmost courage, and his romantic career terminated by his being killed in a duel by Count L., natural son of the first Napoleon. He died as he had lived, beloved by his friends, and leaving behind him little but his name, and the kind thoughts of those who survived him. End of section 9